Okay, so before we start, let's, uh, let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we are grateful for you being an amazing God. We praise your name. You are worthy of praise. Thank you that you saved us and are saving us and will save us. Thank you that you don't give up on us. Even though we're prone to wander, even though we're so dependent on our own thinking, you somehow penetrate through and remind us how much we need you. Because, Lord, we need you. We can do nothing of any good apart from you. We want you to have every single bit of the glory you deserve. So, Father, I pray that the word will proceed forth in a way that transforms us to make us more like you, Jesus. There's nothing better for us than to be more like you. We're far away from that. Help us to surrender. Help us to trust. Help us to walk in your goodness, to abide in the vine. That's where life is. Life is only in the vine. Pray that you get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be continuing our study in 2 Thessalonians. Okay? Going, we skipped a week, but a little background again. Thessalonica, which is called Salonica now, is an area in northern Greece. Paul went there early in the missionary trip, and um, he was there only there for three, three weeks, and the church just bust forth and came alive, okay? So he later goes down to Corinth. He's in Corinth now for about a year and a year and a half. He writes First Thessalonians. Then he hears some feedback messengers because he's sending messengers to there even though he doesn't leave. If we, when we went through Corinthians, we realized the Corinthian church had some challenges, and so he had to spend some time ministering there, so he used others to help him, and they went to Thessalonica, or he got messengers back and forth, and he had some concerns, and so he writes Second Thessalonians in response to that, okay? So we didn't get to finish this last part of the chapter two. The last part that we talked about was about the man of lawlessness. We talked about in First Thessalonians about the rapture and the coming of the Lord, now, at the beginning part of 2 Thessalonians, we talked about the man of lawlessness, that we won't, the second, Christ won't come back until there's a great apostasy. That means people will fall away and stray away. And Christ, and that'll be partly revealed in this, this son of perdition, this man of lawlessness, this basically the, the, the antichrist. There's a spirit of antichrist in the world but this is a particular individual who, like Judas, will have, you know, the spirit of Satan will enter into him. And he will perform many signs and miracles. This individual um, will fool many, many, many people. And if you're not close to the Lord, if you're not abiding to the vine, you yourselves could be deceived. Okay? Only the true church will be able to keep fast and keep hold. And if you can see what's happening in, in the world right now, we're seeing a lot of those who have professed to be Christ have made lots of compromises with the world. When people make trajectories and they chart what's happening with our society, and most of the time it's a downward graft in terms of 
of morality and, and goodness. You see, the church, while not at the level exactly of society, is parallel to it. I mean, the church hasn't been as holy as it was 50 years ago, let alone 150 years ago. And you see this gradual trend where we've made compromises. You know, we've indulged, we've, we've assumed that we can do things, that we're, we're entitled to vacation, we're entitled to our comforts, thinking that that's automatic. Some of us who've gone through Pure Life Ministries, but even others, have been called by the Lord to say, okay, I'm going to forsake some things of the world. I'm going to choose Christ instead of the world. And that means giving up some creature comforts that I like, but I know keeps me from following God more closely. That's the choice we're confronted with each and every day. Okay? And so... Within that context to know, let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And so he says again, he said at the beginning of that chapter, we're bound to give thanks. And he acknowledges that it is God who saved them. You know, when we go and we share the message, we can't take, obviously take credit for that. God saved them. He was only there for three weeks and this church exploded. Okay? He knows it's not to credit for himself, that it was the Holy Spirit who minister them. And it says here, bound, he can't help but give thanks, and that there's a choosing. And so a lot of people interpret this choosing of salvation meaning predestination or, or, or God predetermined. There's no question God is sovereign. There's no question about his sovereignty. He is sovereign over all creation, over all time. He knows all things, all possibilities, all Futures, potential futures, however you want to phrase it. And so he chooses. But within that context, there's things that he wants us to do. And so you see this. He chose you for salvation. So part of that part of that choosing is he has chosen people to be saved. We know he says he wishes none to perish. God chooses people to be saved. His heart's desire is that all will be saved. And he says that salvation is also through sanctification. And it says here, okay, by the Spirit, so it's the Holy Spirit that does it, belief and truth, okay, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining. So our sanctification is by our belief in truth. Our sanctification is by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit does their part, and there's a part that we do. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. 1 John 3, 2. We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the last part of it. So, we 
we shall be like him. That sanctification is we shall be like Jesus. We want to know what sanctification looks like is what does Jesus look like. The more and more we're like Jesus, the more sanctified we are. In the full part of the verse, beloved, now we are children of God and has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Not yet been revealed, but we know that when he's revealed, we shall be like him. So part of that is we don't know, we have not yet experienced the full glory of Christ. We have not seen Christ in all his majesty and reverence. You get a taste of that in Revelation. John talks about it. But when we see the fullness of God, you know, we, we look through a glass dimly now. Our eyes will be revealed through the true majesty of Christ, of God, of what he did, is doing, and will do. And we'll be like him. So what I'm saying is we think because we understand scripture, we know what that looks like. It's bigger and greater than we can imagine. As we abide more in the vine, as we full, more fully manifest the spirit in our heart, in our lives, in everything that we do, God will be glorified more. We will be transformed in ways you don't fully comprehend. But it will require our submission and our trust in him to do so. Moving on to chap uh, chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So Paul's saying stand fast. He knew they were going through persecutions and tribulations. So he said stand fast in your distress. He said stand fast. We've talked about the coming judgment of the world. Stand fast with what's happening. We talked about the falling away, the apostasy. Stand fast against the coming deception. And what we just mentioned earlier, given what we're going to be like in Christ, stand fast because of the glorious destiny that's available in Christ Jesus. Um, when they talk about traditions, he's not talking about, you know, people look at, this is what we do, this is tradition. And this is the way that we've always done it. If you've, um, if you've been to some other churches, some people go, well, this is the way we've done it. This is our tradition. What he's talking about here, and the word here is paradosius, which means tradition in the sense of teaching, like what we've already taught you, what we've already established. He's trying to emphasize that I'm being consistent in what I'm telling you. That everything, and if you've, we've gone through a number of books of the Bible and you get to see Paul says the same message over and over again, okay? It's very consistent, and that's what he means by that sense of tradition. And so the way that he says this, the Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation, we are not alone. Remember about the love of Christ, he gives, he pours out blessings. And 
you, you know, if you ask me for something, I'll help you out. If you ask me a second time, probably help you out. Third time, probably help you out. You know, the 15th time, maybe less likely to help you out. Certainly the 20th time, I'll probably say, okay, come on, God. Come on, you got to take care of this yourself. That's what my flesh would say. Come on. Like, I've helped you enough. Okay, go, go check somebody else out. Okay? But that's not God. We keep going to him each and every day. He is never-ending blessing willing to help us out for those who ask. When he talks about everlasting consolation, he's always there each and every day to help us. At each and every moment. We sometimes, our think is we don't want to ask too much. Oh, I can't ask him too much. God is not like any other man. We can ask again and again, even the same thing. If you ask me the same thing to teach you over and over again, I figure after a third time, you know, where we're taught in medicine, it's like, you know, see one, do one, teach one. Basically, you see it once, you do it the next, and you teach the person the third time. Okay? That's how you, kind of the expectation. You know, with us, with our walk with Christ, we have to see it many times. We do it, we screw it up many times, long before we're able to teach it, if we're ever able to do that. Okay? And that's okay. That's okay. His everlasting love, he's that perfect father who's always patient for the kid who wants to help daddy, you know, whatever. Daddy wants to, you know, want to help change the tire. You know, hand me the wrench. No, I meant the wrench. Thank you, know. <laughs> You know what I mean? And you ask again and again. And he's ever patient, ever wanting to help us. And so that's what it means by consolation. And it says, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work, word and work. We need to practice to ask God for more in every moment of the day. So practicing the presence of God is an ongoing conversation with him. When we say pray continually or unceasingly, unstopping, it's continually asking God, talking with him. It's praise God, I love you, I praise you, you're worthy, lifting up the needs of others, obviously, but also in the moment that you need, ask him. He has never failed me. I fail by not asking him, or I fail by not trusting him, or I fail by not doing what he tells me to do. The opportunity is in the moment, ask more. Okay, so let's move to the beginning of chapter 3. So he says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. He starts with, pray for us. Look at Romans 15.30. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. And then 2 Corinthians 1.11. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. 
I got two more. Ephesians 6, 18 and 19. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. And then Philemon 1.22. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers, I shall be granted to you. Paul covets the prayers of the saints. I know I covered your prayers. I know pastor covets the prayers. We cannot pray too much. We can definitely pray too little. We cannot pray too much. And Paul recognizes that the prayers of others empowers him to share the gospel. He knows that anointing, when you look at where the Holy Spirit is, when people are praying, something changes on the heavenly realms that empowers Paul and empowers all to do the work that they do. It's not something that makes sense. It's not something that a reasoning mind can understand. It's not that you're going to have it figured out how much prayer it's going to take to break through or to do something. It's a trust and faith that I believe you, God, when you tell me that if I pray for others, they will be blessed and you will guide them. And so Paul says over and over, it helps him for his own strength to persevere under trial. It helps him to share the gospel. It helps all the saints together. Spurgeon says, you cannot tell how much God's servants are helped by the prayers of his people. The strongest man in Israel will be better for the prayers of the weakest saint in Zion. He asks prayer so that the word can run freely. So, you know when sometimes, one of the things I noticed on my mission trip when I went to India, and, and I, there's something to be said for individual prayer, but there's also corporate prayer. When we prayed faithfully and fervently, doors opened. When we did not pray, I mean, prayed individually, but not with the same power, not with the earnest, not with the hunger, doors were closed. Now, I'm not going to guarantee that's a guaranteed result. If you pray this much, then this will have this result. I don't know what that's going to look like. I am going to say there's definitely a correlation between the degree that we're surrendered and trusting God and praying versus when we're trying to do it in our own strength. Isaiah 55, 11, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and prosper in the things which I sent it. So God's word will not return void. But God's word is founded on his spirit. And it's his spirit that penetrates through. He'll still do it. He'll still do his job, but we want to see him work. It will require us to be passionate, and fervent in our prayer. Verses three to five. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. 
Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. So when they use the word, he will guard you, the Greek word for that is phulasso, so lasso with a P-H-U in front of it, and it's the way that a shepherd watches over the flock. It's not guarding like a security guard. There is that component of protection like a security guard does, but it's much more a tender, loving, somebody who actually cares like how you guard over your family. And it says the one from the evil one, the word there is poneros, which means, you know, some, some translations say evil one, which we think it's probably correct, but other translations says protect you from evil more generally, which protects, protects you from those who are, when it talks about evil, it means like malignant, it means pernicious, um, morally, socially worthless, wicked, base, degenerate. And to realize the evil one that he's talking about is Satan. Most of us know 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, and with the temptation, temptation will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And then it shows his limits to Satan. This is Jesus talking to Peter in Luke 22, 31 to 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you, but that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus is praying for Peter. Jesus is praying for Peter. That's how important he felt to us. And he knew that Satan is going to go. He knew that Peter will succumb to Satan. He told him. He knew that. But he also knew that Peter would return. And they gave him direction. So he knew what was happening. But the point is God permitted that. Okay? And so you have to realize that in the midst of our trials, when there's evil and wickedness that we encounter, God has not forsaken us. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the outcome of what's going to happen. And he's there with you in the midst of the trial to help you out. But he's going to permit some of those trials because he wants to strengthen us to be like Christ, just as Christ was. If you look, see what Christ was, we should not be surprised that we go through suffering, or we go through trials, and we go through temptations. Okay. Now the Lord directs, may the Lord direct your hearts. So he's praying for that. I mean, we talked before about hupamone, which is the word for endurance. He's praying for patience, but he's with us. Let me read this from Spurgeon. Our father loves each of his children as if he had no others. As if he had no others. We must peer into this abyss of love, plunge into the sea, dive into this depth unsearchable. 
Oh, that God may direct us into the immeasurable greatness of this love. To be directed into the love of God is another thing from all that we can be told of it. A beautiful garden is before us. We look over the wall and are even allowed to stand at the door while one hands out to us baskets of golden apples. This is delightful. Who would not be glad to come so near to this garden of heavenly delights? Yet something more to be shown the door, to have the latch lifted, to see the gateway open, and to be gently directed into the paradise of God. This is what is wanted, that we may be directed into the love of God, or that we may feel something of it while we meditate on it. We may come when we are taught of the Spirit of God to enter the love of God by seeing its central importance. We see that the love of God is a source and center, fountain and foundation of our salvation and all else that we receive from God. What Spurgeon is telling us, you know, when we're in worship, we have a taste. We have moments we have a taste of the love of God. When we can fully grasp it, not just see that taste, not when we just get a few pieces, a few golden apples, but when we actually fully enter in and walk in that love, knowing that love strengthened us, that his consolation is always there with us, we'll have joy you can't explain. It'll only be perfect in heaven, but there's so much more available for us here on this earth. So much more available for us here on this earth. And that's what he's inviting us into. So moving on to verses six and nine. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge. But we worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Now, there's a lot there. I'm going to read to you the voice translation, the same thing. So I want you to hear this. For the sake of the church, brothers and sisters, we insist in the name of our Lord Jesus, the anointed, that you withdraw from any brother or sister who is out of order and unwilling to work, who is straying from the line of teaching which we passed on to all of you. You know how essential it is to imitate us in the way we live life. We were never undisciplined, nor did we take charity from anyone while we were with you. Instead, you saw how we worked very hard day and night so we wouldn't be a burden to even one person in the community. We had the right to depend on your help and hospitality, as you know, but we wanted to give you a model so you could follow to lay a path of footprints for you to walk in. So, Paul made that says, we command you. He says with the strength and his authority, being an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's basically saying, look, this is important. Anybody who's disorderly, that Greek word is ataktos, A-T-A-K-T-O-S, okay, you know, we talked about the tradition, we use that word basically of the teachings, who's not following through, who's lazy, okay? You need to step away from. He's not walking. Withdraw from every brother. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. 
So if there's somebody stumbling, that doesn't mean cut them off. Okay? Somebody who's weak, you need to encourage them. And we do do that. But there's somebody who's in active rebellion, there's somebody who refuses to follow counsel because of their temperament, then you may have to stay away. So that's not commonly done in church. We don't tend to dissociate. Back in the days in the past, there, people were excommunicated. Usually that was not based on being lazy, but based on doctrinal issues. This is talking about people who are not willing to engage and participate. And so the challenge here for all of us, not to like freak out about it, if you're engaged and you're participating, it's not an issue for you, but if there's others who are not, then we need to encourage them, we need to help them along, we need to talk with them, but ultimately, if they refuse every appeal, prayer, and time, we may need to disassociate with them. I don't recommend you do that willy-nilly on your own accord. I do recommend you seek counsel when you do so, okay? I do recommend that you talk and get a sense of what's going on because you may not know the whole picture, okay? But there may be a point, and we've made that decision, where there's some people we've said, okay, this person has been unruly. This person has been somebody who's causing discord within the body. This person is setting a poor standard or pattern behavior, a really bad pattern behavior, and we need to say, I'm sorry, it, I th at least for this time, you need to stay away. You need to dissociate. And why do we do that? Exactly. That they would be shamed of that. That they'd want to come back. They'd humble themselves and say, hey, I screwed up. I'm so sorry. We need to reconcile. The intent, even when you're putting them out and not talking to them, is still that they be reconciled back to Christ. Okay? He wants them to see the need. Their need for like, yeah, I screwed up. I'm sorry. I'm going, well, yeah. And if somebody is repentant and is sincere and wants to engage, we welcome back with open arms. Okay, this is not something that we bear grudges or, oh, well, yeah, you screwed up, forget it, we're not going to let you back in. That's not right. That's not of Christ. Okay, but the intent is not to punish them. The intent is not to allow them to disrupt others. And the intent is to help them get to a point of seeing their need for Christ and the fellowship of the body. So in 1 Corinthians 5 chapters, or 1 Corinthians 5, Verses 4 and 5, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus, which is the point I was saying, okay? That the intent is you want them, because what it is, when you're not doing it, it's your flesh. When I don't want to do something that the word commands me to do, it's my flesh, it's my self-life. So I'm not willing to die to self. It says to die daily. It's my challenge. It's, a trust, it's the challenge we all have. So in this way, Paul's trying to show a vision of church. It should be a place of such love and comfort that when you're excluded, you feel like you're empty. It should be such a place that people feel welcomed that when you're not there, you're like, this is, I want to be there. And you know what? I think we're getting there. I don't like to miss church at all. I hate it when I miss. I miss the fellowship to get together with you all. I miss the praise and the worship. We're talking about is that deep level of community. So Paul then says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. 
And he talked about, one of the things that commends Paul is everything he did, he did for the glory of God. And he recognized that in each moment, what he was doing, he should, you say you should have cut slack and just said, okay, look, I'm just going to, I've been through a lot. I've been beaten by rods. I've been beaten, whipped. I've been let down a basket, stone, left for dead. Give me a break. Thanks for helping me. I need that respite time. You take care of things. Let me just kick back for a little bit. Now what he did. Now what he did. I'm there. He's making tents. He's chipping in. He's always helping. He's always serving. He wants to let him know because every time it's an example. He says, it doesn't matter what my level is. No matter how high I am, it's not like the top people get things catered to and the people at the bottom, the peons who have to do the work. That is not the church. The church is everybody serves at all times. Everybody's being a blessing, and those in leadership are to serve at least as much to set an example for others. So it's a call for us that we're there to serve, to allow others to, to see what it means to follow, to be that example. Warren Wearsby said, the greatest influence is that of godly living and sacrifice. A Christian leader may appeal to the authority of the word, but if he cannot point also to his own example of obedience, his people will not listen. This is the difference between authority and stature. I love how he says that. You can have authority because it's based on your position, but somebody who, who leads by sacrifice, by example, has stature. A leader earns stature as he obeys the word and serves his people in the will of God. Authority comes from position. Stature comes from practice and example. Stature earns the leader the right to exercise authority. And that's what we believe here. That as you serve and as you do it, then it shows that you have the stature to step into the role that, to lead others. Okay, let's move on to verse 10 to 13. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. So we talked about that. If you're not willing to work, not willing to pull your share, you don't get to eat. Now some people are unable to. Okay, they're just unable to. They're disabled, they're injured, there's something that happens. We understand that. But we're talking about those who are able. Okay? And he says that they're, use the term here, you know, they're not working at all, but they're busy bodies. Okay? And in the Greek, the phrasing is really like busy bodies who do no business. Okay? That's how that would be phrased. Now, sometimes, some people thought at that time, because remember what they talked about the Thessalonians? Um, they said, oh, well, we missed it. The rapture's come. You know, they, remember I, I talked about that earlier, that they thought they had missed it, and he said, no, 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 not until the man of lawlessness comes. You don't have to worry yet. That hasn't happened. But a lot of people think, you know, Jesus is coming back soon. 
So everybody thinks, oh, he's coming back soon. So, you know, I can just kick back. It doesn't matter. Okay, I don't have to work. I don't have to save up. I don't have to do this. I don't have that because, you know, Jesus come back any time. So let's just live for now. That is not what the gospel is saying. And so he said, we need to be prudent. Okay? doesn't mean you stop serving. The idea of retirement we've talked about is not a biblical term. You may retire from your vocation that you're doing to earn income, but you're not retired as a believer in Christ to serve the kingdom. Okay? So it says, Matthew, go make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're all called to do that all the time. And even if you're physically unable to do certain things, then you can pray. Okay? Our service, our work goes until we're in the kingdom. It doesn't stop. Okay? And that's the thing to appreciate. You may have the privilege that you don't have to work as hard to earn an income because you get, you know, a pension or you get something that you can, some investments that you can save. And praise God that you can do that. Okay? That you can devote more time for the kingdom instead of working. Praise God that you can do that. Okay? But the idea is there's no retirement in the kingdom of God. Okay. It says, do not grow weary in doing good. In the King James Version, it says, do not, be not weary in well-doing. I kind of like that phrasing. You know, there are a lot of people who are well-wishing, they're well-resolving, well-suggesting, well-criticizing. Many people are certainly well-talking, but not as many who are well-doing. And there's a lot of reasons why they think they shouldn't do well. Ah, it takes too much effort in doing good. But you know how much effort people do for what they want to do, right? Or so much self-denial to keep doing good. But we forget what the reward is from doing it, both here and in eternity. Or that adage, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. You may have heard that. Okay, no good deeds goes unpunished. That's not in the Bible. Okay? It brings me persecution for doing good. It says you'll be persecuted for righteousness' sake. But a persecution that we go through are nothing compared to what others have suffered, let alone Christ. And people don't respond. And, you know, there aren't any results from when I do good. But I remember how slow I was to respond to Christ. How many people shared the gospel to me over and over before I finally surrendered? How I thought I did or how God was patient with me. And the last one of this I'm going to say is, I'm not appreciated when I do good. You know, ah, they don't appreciate me. I did all that and nobody gives me any thanks. And What? He got the credit for the good that I did? What? Again, all these things are self-focused. The selfishness. We forget the thanks that God does that we don't appreciate and thanks God for all the blessings that he continually gives us each and every day. The one who by rights says he doesn't get enough thanks for would be God. Go to Galatians 6 and 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Um, I read something this um, Pentecostal pastor, Ryan French, said about why some of the reasons where we can lose heart. And I love the cautions here. So the points he has are nine of them. One, 
we lose heart when we don't pray to God. If we're not communicating regularly with God, our relationship is unhealthy, we'll lose heart. We lose heart when we don't really praise God, when we have half-hearted praise. When you praise Him wholly with your heart like we do in worship and you do, you're encouraged. I'm enlivened. I love coming here when we worship together. I don't lose heart that way. When I'm not thanking God for the good He does and I'm, when my thanks are half-hearted, then I will grow weary. Um, I like this one because this was a surprise to me. Habitually missing church. It says, do not, Paul says, don't give up meeting together and fellowshipping. A lot of churches have given away, they don't even have Sunday night services. A lot of them have given up Wednesday prayer and they, they sometimes will do a small group. I've been at church, you know, they meet one Sunday and then they do a small group and that's basically all that they do. And you have other functions. I'm not sure that's a wise thing. I can tell you that when we get together as the body and when we pray and sing together, there's something that changes in a spiritual level. It changes within me and changes within all of us. And it says, when we miss church, our carnal nature will pull at us. By coming back to church, it resets us to go, oh yeah, this is for the king, this is for eternity. Of course, murmuring and complaining. So number four is if we're murmuring or complaining. If I know that I have a critical, complaining heart and I don't like things, then I'm going to grow weary. I don't like what's happening. I don't like my job. I don't like what's happening here. I don't like my family. All things realize how much we have that critical thinking, especially thinking, oh, this should be like this. This should be. Oh, it's like this. Why is it like this? The frustration, if we notice we're frustrating, that would be a sign of that dissension within us. And we'll get weary. Another one that he mentioned that I liked was spiked levels of temptation and intensified longings for worldliness. Wow, first time I've heard that. There are moments we're doing well with the Lord. In other moments, suddenly it seems like all I want is things of the world. I'm suddenly under tremendous temptation, whether it's lust for guys or even things to buy things or have things. And if that temptation is strong for a period of time, it'll make us grow weary. It just wears us down. Okay? One of the things we have the advantage and we know wise enough is ask for prayer. Call somebody up. Okay? I was feeling weary when I asked my brother Troy for prayer for me, and he helped me out at that time. We need that time to ask for help when we're feeling tired and weary, discouraged. We don't sometimes want to be a bother. It's always a blessing. The person, when, I, when somebody asks me for prayer and I pray for them, I'm blessed by praying for them. It's never a lose-lose. It's always a win-win in the kingdom. If we're quick to get angry, quick to take offense, quick to speak sharply, like, you know, you know that sharp retort, we're going to grow weary. Watch those things. If we're angry, if we're angry all the time, ready to ignite one wrong word and we're suddenly about to go off, kick the cat or the dog kind of thing, we're going to grow weary. Notice these things about ourselves. If we're unwilling to participate, so if you're doing some things, I'm not saying you need to do work yourself to death, but we have, like we're going to have a work day on the 17th. Coming together as we do, 
builds your strength of community, encourages you. When you do things for my own project in the house, it's good. But I notice when I do something to, to build things together with my brothers, and brothers and sisters for that matter, in Christ and building something together, I'm encouraged. So when you engage and participate in something that builds the kingdom or helps others with their walk and their faith, participate in things of the kingdom, but more importantly than even those things is when you're not exercising your spiritual gifts. I can't emphasize that enough. We talk here about that. You have gifts that God's given you. If you're not working in the way that God has meant for you to be in the body, you're going to get weary. If you're supposed to be the hand and you're doing footwork, you're going to get weary. Okay? We're not designed to walk on our hands. We don't do very well with that. Okay? And so realize when you're, as you get attuned, you'll, you'll know where the gifts are. If God's given you a, a passion or something, to, if you're exercising those gifts, it will encourage you in your walk. You won't go tired. You'll be, actually, when you're walking, when you're doing in your gifts, it's actually energizing. That's one way you know you're in your giftedness because the Spirit of God's within you and the Spirit of God flows to you as you're a conduit of the Spirit of God to be a blessing and it expands the kingdom. Um, here's one, one of two last ones I'm going to talk about. Number eight is bitterness. And when you look at that part before about quick to anger and offense, sometimes those two are connected. But if you're bitter, if there's something that's been eating at you, something will trigger, you may come across something and it'll expose something that you thought you've taken care of. Or you thought you laid it down and you bring it back up and it suddenly brings up resentments. Somebody wronged you in the past, something's happened when you were a child, a lot of different things. And you can become bitter from that. You can get sour from that and then you'll grow weary. And the last one, and we all know this, is rebellion. If you're an active rebellion, you will grow weary. I did. When I was rebelling against God that brought me to pure life, it was weary. It was tiring. I was tired all the time. I didn't have any joy near energy. No, no sense of exuberance, no passion for the Lord. So I like the points that he had. I'll just review them. So lack of prayer, half-hearted praise, habitually missing church, murmuring and complaining, spike levels of temptation and intensified longings for worldliness, quick to anger, offense, unwillingness to participate in the kingdom of God using your gifts, bitterness, and rebellion. Okay, let's uh, move on to the last, well, we got five more verses, but the next two are chapter three, verses 14 to 15. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So as I, we've already kind of covered this. This is the part that I talked about earlier. The intent is, to encourage them, to bring them back in the fold, but don't associate. You may have to set some barriers about that if they're clearly acting in a way that's disruptive to the body and against the word. And the intent, again, okay, is that he may be ashamed, 
And then he's not an enemy, he's still a brother. And yet that you will bring them back into the fold once they're repentant and willing to reconcile. Now, in closing, verses 16 to 18 in the third chapter, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So, reveal something about Paul. He had somebody there who's kind of his scribe writing. So most of them, somebody else is writing it down as he's talking to them. Kind of like Jeremiah had Baruch there with him. So he has a scribe there who's writing things for him. But at the end, he last writes in his own hand. Just like if we do a typewritten letter, we may add some words at the very end to indicate that it's our own, our own personal touch, and that's what he did. And he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. First, may the Lord of peace be, be peace with you always and the grace. Peace and grace. We talked about how he opened this book with peace and grace, right? Peace, shalom for the Jews, grace, charis for the Gentiles. And he closes this with peace and grace. In all things, that's the wish. Do we wish peace and grace? We're empowered by grace, but centered on the peace. I look at that as a way do I have the peace of God and am I operating in His grace? Do I have the peace of God and operating in His grace? That's what His wish is because that's the centered way of being. And when I pray and talk with God, I ask God, give me peace to trust in you. And as, I, as we fall in love with God, as we appreciate His love for us, we'll have more peace. The more we believe in the goodness and, and the love of God, the more peace we'll have because none of this will worry. We know He's going to work it all out to good. We know that all things will work to good. We know it. Like, know it. Like, nothing. We won't be able to be wavered because it'll be like, for sure, it's going to happen. Doesn't matter. Can't get the house that I wanted? Doesn't matter. Can't get the job I thought I was going to have? Doesn't matter. Can't get the wife I think I should be with? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Okay? God's going to work it all out to good. I'm here because of the goodness of the Lord. I wouldn't be here otherwise without his goodness. Not my plan. Not the way I had it figured out. Certainly not. But I wouldn't want to be in a better place than here. I'm grateful that God took my screw-ups to make bring to this place to be here. To make it something beautiful. And I'm looking forward to being it being even more beautiful. As we trust in him as we surrender to him, not half-heartedly, wholeheartedly, all in, going in deeper, fuller, just as Pastor shared. What does it mean to be completely sold out? That's what it's going to take. Our walk, we can't be coasting. With what's happening, with what's coming, we have to get in stronger. We have to know the word better. We have to surrender ourselves more so and trust in his goodness. Okay, any last questions? Yeah, I have, I have a question because I'm actually 
What should you do, Stephen? I mean, uh, I mean, I've seen them capitalize things destroy the church. Well, if the church is destroyed by that, it wasn't a strong church. So even if a brother turns against it, you can always pray for them. Okay? And so it may need that we'd have to pray more. So no church should be easily destroyed. If a church is destroyed, it's because their faith was not strong in the Lord. Okay? They weren't bound well together. If they turn against the pastor, they weren't with the Lord probably in the first place. So are there a lot of people in church that turn that? Yes. But there are a lot of people in church who are not sold out to Jesus Christ. And so as we're more sold out to Jesus, as we're more abiding in that, we're not going to waver where things are. We've had people leave here, and the church hasn't fallen apart. If anything, the church has grown stronger. Okay? So a lot of churches aren't strong. The pastor's strong, but most of the congregation is not surrendered to the Lord. They're walking in their own flesh and their own understanding. They're not using biblical bases. They're biblically literate. And they're sinning. And we talked about that whole idea. It's the very reason that you, can't, you won't be turned because you're going to be steadfast because you're trusting in the word. It's not just trusting in leadership. It's not trusting in pastor or anybody else here. It's trusting in the word of God. And the word of God, what it says and what the anointing is on that and what he's done. Pastor, I tell you, he's imperfect. I am far from perfect. We're all imperfect beings. And we, he said, I'll make mistakes. He's made mistakes. Every one of us will make mistakes. But it says... Love covers a multitude of sins. Love forgives. It's always forgiving. Keeps no record of wrongs. The idea is you confront the brother with a mistake, and he corrects and repents, including the pastor, myself. You confront, I make a mistake. Confront me. I need to repent. If you don't hear repentance from me, then you may have to grab Justin to come with you or Troy or somebody else, whatever it takes. Does that answer your question? Any other questions? Okay. Brian, will you close us in prayer?